0: To Weekly Review. This is Roman. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. We are broadcasting live in San Francisco. We're on Ohlone land. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Today's program, we're going to be playing an audio panel, an audio recording of a panel discussion from this year's Bay Area Anarchist Book Fair. It's a really awesome event if folks are able to go. I highly recommend it. They have panel discussions, books, lots of great things. I can't recommend it highly enough. I am slowly waking up here. It's been quite a week, and I will be getting to some new stories later on in the program. It's—I uh, have to sigh. I often sigh during this program, and also going to provide a trigger warning because we do talk about current events as well as history. And fuck, that's my summary of it. I'm currently, in a, taking a California labor history class, and I would think every every day I can, like, I couldn't possibly despise actions of police more, and then I read a history book and I'm like, oh, gosh. Ugh. So, if anything, it's a lot of these patterns are repeating themselves and things that have been going on that are happening now have been going on for a long time, as many of us know. So, as I get my thoughts together, <laughs> I'm going to get the audio set up. I'm going to read a description of the panel discussion that we're going to hear. It was really great, and I will let the, the folks who were in the workshop, in the panel discussion, speak for themselves in the recording here. If you're interested in checking out more about the Bay Area Anarchist Book Fair, you can go to Bay Area Anarchist Book And in 2018, they have the workshop descriptions. And this one was Insurgent Supremacists, the US Far Rights Challenge to State and Empire. And this was a panel moderated by James Tracy with Matthew N. Lyons, author of Insurgent Supremacists, The U.S. Far Right's Challenge to State and Empire, uh, which was released by PM Press this year. Uh, Lisa Roth of the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee and Delio Vasquez, a Ph.D. candidate at UC Santa Cruz. And the description of this panel. In this panel... Matthew N. Lyons, author of Insurgent Supremacists, the U.S. Far-Right's Challenge to State and Empire, Uh, Lisa Roth of the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, and Delio Vasquez, Ph.D. candidate at UC Santa Cruz, moderated by James Tracy, co-author of Hillbilly Nationalists, explore some of the history of leftist efforts to understand and combat fascist and far-right forces. This includes from the Black Panther Party's confrontations with state repression in the late 60s and early 70s, to the notification of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1980s, to the alt-right strategic but ambivalent relationship with Donald Trump today. The workshop offers a range of perspectives illustrating that rightist politics encompass different types of threats and call for different kinds of responses. Today's far-right has a contradictory relationship with the established order, bolstering social oppression and inequality while rejecting the legitimacy of the U.S. government and often claiming to be anti-imperialist and sometimes even anti-capitalist. In this context, fighting the far right and attacking institutionalized systems of power represent distinct but interconnected struggles. So I'm going to go ahead and play this audio recording. Big thanks to James Tracy for moderating this discussion as well as recording this. And Ollie will be checking in throughout the panel. perhaps taking a a little break in between folks speaking and thanks so much for listening. And here we go.
1: And
0: it would help if I played the correct track, would it not? We're very DIY here at Mutiny Radio. Again, thanks so much for listening in and we will get started in just a moment here. Thanks again so much for listening. Ah, <sighs> okay. So just bear with me one moment get this all ready to go.
2: Hey, good afternoon and, and welcome everyone, thank you so much for, uh, for being here. Uh, my name is James Tracy, I'll be your moderator for this, uh, for this session, I'll offer a few opening remarks and then turn it over to our esteemed panel. Uh, we are gathered here today uh, to explore a lot of the themes in this fantastic new book, Insurgent Sem- Supremacists: The U.S. Uh, far Right's Challenge to State and Empire, by uh, Matthew Lyons, uh, two people over uh, to, my, uh, to my right. Uh, This is a very valuable book on many levels, uh, but mainly because it exposes so many of the fractures that the far-right movement has and leads the reader away from simplistic conclusions, and hopefully it will be used as a tool towards sophisticated organizing and our increased ability not only to counter fascist violence, but undermine its appeal in the first place. The anarchist tradition contains a very rich history of confronting the far right and fascism. We claim uh, claim in this history uh, the Rash organization, the radic- radical anarchist skinhead uh, group you know, coming out of Chicago and Brooklyn. Uh, anti-racist uh, action, of course, was not just anarchist, but uh, play- anarchist played a major role in Love, uh, love and Rage. Uh, many you know many for many of us this resurgence of uh, of fascism isn't, isn't the first time that uh, it has influenced our lives. Our uh, communities have been targeted for racist violence and uh, I personally have the experience of having of being part of a community that was targeted for recruitment in the 80s uh, where I first met many people in the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee when the, uh, the white Aryan Resistance and other assorted boneheads uh, tried to uh, do something called Arian Woodstock, in the little nether netherworld between Vallejo and Napa. Um, believe it or not, Arian Woodstock, a um, real real thing. And for, for many people who come from the anti-authoritarian political tradition, many of our ideas about fascism and uh, the role of the state comes out of our readings of the, of the Spanish Civil War. Uh, so I think that you know fa- fascism especially today 's fascism rubs rubs wounds raw that already exists in our movement and uh, you know be- you know because of the serious threat uh, so it it's a really helpful helpful thing in my opinion to take a step back and look at look how uh, movements in history have uh, have confronted fascism have formulated fascism have understood the far far right. Uh, In a book that I wrote a few years ago, we start off right here in Oakland when the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense brought together the United Front Against Fascism in the old Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center, bringing uh, bringing together people like the Young Patriots Organization, the Young Lords, Students for a Democratic Society. And as Delio uh, Vasquez will uh, Will remind us the Panthers had a pretty sophisticated uh, understanding of fascism, coming largely coming out of the prisoners' movement and uh, and uh, George Jackson. Um, we're really excited to have Delio here. Uh, he is somebody who I believe will have many, many, many books. He hasn't been published as, as in a complete book yet, but I think he is one of the. Up-and-coming intellectuals of the ra- or the radical movement. He's been published in uh, in Viewpoints, most recently, and um, has a. Just fantastic work on the role of illegality in uh, in politics, and uh, my friend uh, Lisa Roth was a member of the John Brown anti klan Committee. Someone who never ceases to uh, dazzle me and amaze, amaze me with uh, with insights both into history and into the contem- contemporary day. So. After we um, and then' we'll, we will of course uh, end our part with uh, with Matthew bringing it all t- all together for what th- what this might mean mean for us today uh, and we'll invite everybody for uh, question answer and dialogue I will um, only ask that we uh, you know, that we ask those those questions, to have those dialogues, in the spirit that a movement is actually possible to confront fascism. Disagreements amongst ourselves are important to have and important to explore. But let's uh, l- uh, let, let's go about it in a way that uh, maybe uh, you know, united front against fascism, in the in the spirit of the Panthers, the Lords, and um, the, the young, young Patriots, might actually be possible today. So this, uh, this session is being audio recorded. So if you do not care to be identified, simply do not share your name with us if you uh, uh, if you like, like to speak after this. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome my good friend, Delio. Uh, so first of all, I have to say that it's, uh,
3: it's amazing to be Amazing to be up here with such um, influential, uh, accomplished, and uh, brave individuals as Lisa, uh, Tracy, and Matthew. Uh, So I'll be speaking pretty briefly on the Black Panther Party's take on fascism in the 60s and 70s, specifically through three primary topics, fascism and police, fascism and politics, and fascism and genocide. On October 27, 1967, Black Panther Party co-founder is this sound alright? Yeah. Black Panther Party co-founder Huey P. Newton was pulled over by police officer John Fry. After the arrival of another police officer, an altercation and a volley of gunfire, Newton was shot in the midsection, and Officer Fry was shot and killed. Approximately one year before, the Black Panther Party had been formed. Approximately a year and a half before, Officer Fry joined the Oakland Police Force. In that short time, Fry had developed a reputation as a virulent racist. In a prior trial, Alfred Dunning, a black man and accountant, testified that Fry had racially harassed him during a traffic accident. When Dunning complained that Fry was acting like the Gestapo, Frye loosened his holster, put his hand on his gun, and said, I am the Gestapo, and ordered Dunning to his car. For the Black Panther Party, uh, they use the term fascism to refer to the police and the military in light of the inseparable relationship between American capitalism, or capitalism generally, and American racism in 1969 they called for a revolutionary conference for a united front against fascism for them the signs of fascism could be seen in the increasing militarization of police and national guardsmen as history has shown us however it is impossible to fight fascism an ideology which is grounded in popular and mass appeal as a minority of population this reason the Black Panther Party distinguished between what they called their party line and their mass line according to their party line the membership of the party would be exclusive to black people as they maintained that it was necessary to organize the black community internally first at the same time according to their mass line the Black Panther Party would ally with anyone who would ally with them coherent with a revolutionary nationalist and, later, internationalist ideology. Uh, That is, the uh, the Panthers um, thought that in order to liberate themselves as black people, they had to ally themselves with all other oppressed people globally. To this end, the Black Panther Party established a number of national committees to combat fascism. Under the umbrella of the Black Panther Party, Membership in these chapters made it possible for allies, white and otherwise, to organize and support the building of the revolution directly. By 1970, there were 18 such chapters in the country. For perpetually imprisoned Black Panther Party field marshal and political theorist George Jackson, fascism was not something of the future, but a fact of the present. This is a fact, of course, concealed by prisons, in particular, which hide away the millions that are criminalized and discarded in the wake of the the operation of the state. In a political manual published after his death, Blood in My Eye, which I would recommend everyone to read, George Jackson wrote, there must be a collective redirection of the old guard, the factory and union worker, with a campus activist who can counter the ill effects of fascism at the training site, at the, at the university, and with the lumpen proletariat intellectuals. Uh, lumpen proletariat is, uh, basically refers to the unemployed or criminal class that, for Marx, uh, uh, is like typically kind of revolutionary or sells out the revolution relative to the working class. So George Jackson here says the lumpen proletariat intellectuals who possess revolutionary scientific socialist attitudes to deal with the masses of street people who are already living outside of the system. They must work together, uh, sorry, they, they must work toward developing the unity of the pamphlet and the silenced pistol. Black, brown, and white are all victims together. At the end of this massive collective struggle, we will uncover our new man, or human, if, if we will, I'm quoting, uh, of course, Jackson still, the unpredictable culmination of the revolutionary process. In the last couple of years, right, people uh, from a variety of walks of life have found themselves in the streets in violent clashes with another set of people who have increasingly identified themselves uh, with a political project aimed at consolidating power and resources around a white nation, around American citizenship, and around patriarchal domination, around a supposedly better time in the past. We have observed, however, that what often starts as a shouting match between 300 liberals or leftists and 50 white supremacists has more often than not ended up as a clash between 300 civilians and 200 armed police. As people are brought out into the streets over and over again, They find themselves increasingly, or they find increasingly, that their bones are broken, that their bodies are confined, caged, and that their loved ones are killed not by the racists who volunteered to be there, but by the professionals paid by the state to be there. The Black Panther Party's emphasis on understanding the relationship between fascism and police in particular resonates. Uh, I'm gonna now quote just a little bit from a movie review that um, was written on uh, Sorry to Bother You, right? Uh, By uh, Robin D.G. Kelly, who's a black Marxist historian based out of UCLA, I think. Um, Quote, we confuse conform and catharsis for revolution. It is easy to see self-styled white nationalists as our primary threat and chasing clansmen and Nazis out of town makes us feel good. It is not that white nationalists are harmless, but they constitute a threat only insofar as they are sanctioned by a state that is far more dangerous to our lives and well-being. We die more often at the hands of cops, good cops, than by Nazis and clansmen, and we die in prisons, and we die by gunfire at the hands of acquaintances, loved ones. And by random acts of violence and we die slowly from being poor from lack of health care from self-medication from the water we drink the food we eat and the air we breathe the more dangerous forces are often the ones that look friendliest uh, so uh while uh hughie was still in prison uh, Expanding on the writings of uh, Mao Zedong, he wrote, Politics is war without bloodshed. War is politics with bloodshed. When the peaceful means of politics are exhausted and the people do not get what they want, politics is continued. Usually this ends up in physical conflict, which is called war, and is also political. So, of course, uh, The thinking here being that the law uh, hides the reality of the everyday violence of the state the Black Panther Party sought to address this perpetual war through their 10-point program of course uh, famously Newton said a 10-point program is not revolutionary in itself nor is it reformist it is a survival program We the people are threatened with genocide because racism and fascism are rampant in this country and throughout the world. And the ruling circle in North America is responsible. We intend to change all of that, and in order to change it, there must be a total transformation. But until we can achieve that total transformation, we must exist. So, while members of the Black Panther Party on the East Coast and in the Midwest Uh, took up arms to combat those that they saw as the frontline foot soldiers of fascism in the present for newton and panthers on the west coast organizing against genocide meant building independent anti-capitalist institutions centers of power and ways to sustain the people and black people in particular against both violent attacks and the government's bureaucratic abandonment Uh, yeah period Uh, i'll end with a george jackson quote uh, from the same book uh, again blood and i settle your quarrels come together understand the reality of our situation understand that fascism is already here that people are already dying who could be saved that generations more will die or live poor butchered half-lives if you fail to act Do what must be done, discover your humanity, and your love in revolution. Pass on the torch. Join us. Give up your life for the people. That was fantastic. I can't
4: wait to read your book. My name's Lisa Roth. I'm with the John Brown Anti-Plan Committee. Thank you so much for inviting us to speak at this august occasion. And thank you to my distinguished colleagues for being on this panel. Um, The John Brown Anti-Plan Committee was formed in the 1970s. Uh, We came from... what was then called the new left. We were part of the new left that was the anti-imperialist left, which is to say that where most of our friends and colleagues and forebears looked at the situation in the United States and said that the primary contradiction was the class struggle, we looked at the United States and we saw a prison house of nations that unlike England or other colonial powers that had their colonies overseas, sometimes settler colonies like South Africa or Israel, um, other times um, that in the United States, the colonies that were owned, controlled, and oppressed by the United States were inside the borders of the United States, the black nation, Native American nations, Mexicano and Chicano, and Puerto Rican nations. And as a result of that perspective, we and other people, the anti-imperialist movement at that point was broad. It included the Weather Underground, Prairie Fire Organizing Committee, May 19th, the Communist Organization, and other organizations throughout the United States Our perspective was that as white anti-imperialists, if we wanted to fight U.S. imperialism, our primary responsibility was to fight white supremacy in all its forms. Prisons, police, Ku Klux Klan, fascist movements, immigration, and we still hold those principles today. And sadly, All of the things that were needed then are still needed today, some would say now more than ever. So the anti-Klan committee, we worked closely with the New York campers and later supported the Black Liberation Army. As a result of that work, we found ourselves involved with doing prison work because many of the Black Panthers that had been our friends, colleagues, and comrades in the 60s and early 70s were then in prison in the New York State prison system and around the country. Uh, Prisoners at Napanock State Prison, which is a a small maximum security prison in upstate New York, told us that prison guards at that prison were members of the Ku Klux Klan. And our first reaction was, well, they can't actually be members of the Ku Klux Klan. The guys must mean they're just really racist. And the prisoners were like, no, honky. We mean they're members of the Ku Klux Klan. And so they asked us to drive to Albany Um, the New York State Capitol, where you could get planning, where you could look at the incorporation papers of various organizations and do the research and see what we could find out. And of course, since this predated the internet, that meant driving to Albany and looking at the actual documents. And indeed, the guy who was the head of the New York State Prisoners Union, was the guy who was named on the New York State Ku Klux Klan incorporation papers as registered in Albany, New York. And hence, a bunch of people who had been involved in prison work in New York City became the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee. Um, and our, our work against the Klan in the prisons led us to learn very quickly that the Klan was all over the Northeast. Um particularly organizing in places where the military industrial complex in its literal form, like um the shipyards, uh Smith and Wesson has their main factory in Connecticut. Uh so this was not abstract to us. This became very real. The Klan was organizing on the streets of Meriden, Connecticut. They did a robed Klan March in the 1970s, and we mobilized against it. One of the things that we learned from our work and our our commitment to direct action against the Klan was that traditionally, the Klan in the United States was very rah-rah, all American, apple pie, white supremacy, and initially, like in World War II, had not supported organizations like the Nazis. And that in the period between the end of World War II to the beginning of the 1980s, Nazis, and I know you're gonna talk about this, this is one of your areas, um, identified that they felt like the Klan should be part of their movement. Um, much to the way we might look at other leftists or other progressives and think, we need to reach out to these people. There's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be in the same movement. So the Nazis implemented a strategy to organize the Ku Klux Klan and to build what we and John Brown came to call and think of as the Nazified Klan. And they made their, I guess big splash you would call it, or at Greensboro in 1979 when they killed five anti-klan activists at an anti-klan protest. Following Greensboro, they spread around the country, and they identified not, they identified skinheads as and other white supremacists as people that they would like to organize. So as James mentioned, they, they started organizing in the youth and punk movements of the 1980s and 90s. And in San Francisco, we in the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee mobilized, we worked with anti-racist skinheads, but also to fight Nazi skinheads. And they were, they were also organizing amongst the religious right um. The the creationists. Uh, what do they call?
2: It? Evangelical Christians
4: No, no, God I meant be- the people who. No, no, no. I I meant in terms of like the political movement that identifies black people as my people. Oh, Christian, Christian identity, right? Um. Then one of the things that's existed in our country is many venues and strains for white supremacists to flourish all throughout history. And the Nazified Klan made every effort one one of the most successful, historically, in bringing all those strains together. So they could recognize that Christian identity people were not likely to be Nazi skinheads, although Nazi skinheads embraced Christian identity beliefs. And they made a big effort to organize inside of prisons, in the streets, in the religious movements, um, the patriot movements, the you know people who want to graze their cattle on federal land. Um, they built the Aryan Nations in prisons. So they these movements have been developing, I would say, nonstop since the creation of this country. They haven't always looked the same, but they've always been here, and white supremacists have always had a venue in which to mobilize other white supremacists. And as a result, we believe it's always been our responsibility and still the responsibility of progressive and anti-racist whites to fight white supremacy as our primary task. Not to say our only task, I mean, I've worked on the dike march for years. It's not anti-plan stuff. Isn't the only thing I think about, but we do believe that it's the primary thing. In the sense, and by primary, I mean when we crack this, we'll make some significant headway. And until we crack this, we won't make significant headway. To that end, well, I have a lot of things I'd love to say, but I'm going to try to wrap up. Um, you know, the, the, the neo-Nazis organized Aryan in Woodstock here in um, Napa in 1989. Uh, and one of the things, as part of building a mass movement, this was very important to us to have a direct confrontation. Um, I mean, we, we weren't able to have a direct con- confrontation because they did it on private property. But mobilizing people, like James, Um, (laughs) to take a stand against this activity happening was one of the things that we did and ultimately we organized about 5,000 people to go to a protest in Napa on the day of Arian Woodstock. We went to speak at the Napa City Council meeting where we urged the council to take a position and not allow the neo-Nazis to have Aryan Woodstock. We did this not because we believed for a minute that the council would really do it, but because we wanted to raise the issue of free speech as a false issue. Something that we here in the East Bay are plagued with as recently as a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and to try to get the city council to take a position. We knew that they couldn't stop it. It was on this guy's private property. And it was a way for us to meet the local people um, who wanted to take a position against this. We felt that it was very important, and we still feel that public organizing against white supremacy is critical to building a mass movement, that people have to learn that it's good to take a stand, that it's okay to take a stand, and that it it's both risky and that there's safety in numbers. One of the things we did was we um, we organized campaigns to paint out racist graffiti around San Francisco. Partly we wanted to do that because we thought painting out racist graffiti would be a good thing, but partly because we wanted to make help people become comfortable with taking illegal action, um, and to take a, to take to do an action that was basically pretty low risk. I mean, who doesn't want to paint out racist graffiti, right? Who's going to argue with that? But was technically illegal, and that we felt like it was important both to paint out the racist graffiti and then paint anti-racist graffiti, which was also illegal. Um, <laughs> But that these were part of building a mass movement so that the next time we asked somebody to do something that was a little more illegal, like have a direct confrontation with racists, people would feel more comfortable. None of us are born feeling comfortable with this kind of direct action. And everything in our society points to and pressures people to believe that voting for example, is the only way to make social change um, when in fact history has shown us just the opposite. Um, no significant social change has come from voting alone. So then when we look at the developments since then we can see a direct line from the Nazified plan to the Oklahoma bombings to the Tea Party, to Sarah Palin, to Donald J. Trump, and the current white nationalist movement. These things are not just new, weird phenomena that have cropped up. They have a long history, but we have a long history too. And we're still about building a mass anti-fascist, anti-white supremacist movement, and look forward to working with all of you to make that happen.
0: So this is Roman back here again at Mutiny Radio here, taking a little brief uh, pause here from this panel discussion. And if you're just tuning in now, we're listening to a workshop that was held this at this year's Bay Area Anarchist Book Fair, and this was Insurgent Supremacists, the U.S. Far Rights Challenge to State and Empire. And we're going to take a little bit of a music break at the moment before we get back to... To the the panel discussion, so stay tuned.
1: Got you where I want you, motherfucker. On your down. And if you want to peep on something, peep what I got stuck between your Baby brother, swallow time to pay Baby, I only want to try and be your friend Since I ain't got nothing left to do Got you where I want you, motherfucker Don't you try to move
0: of the program, and again, we're listening to an audio recording of a panel discussion from this year's Bay Area Anarchist Book Fair, and that is Insurgent Supremacists, the U.S. Far-right's challenge to state and empire. So we've heard so far from Celio Vasquez and Lisa Roth. And coming up next, we're going to hear from Matthew N. Lyons, who is the author of Insurgent Supremacist, The U.S. Far Rights Challenge to State and Empire, which was released this year uh, from PM Press. And again, if you'd like like to find more information, um, check out com. You're listening to the Weekly Review, and back to the rest of the program.
5: Hello, everybody. I'm Matthew Lyons. Thank you all for coming. Uh, Thank you, Lisa, and Dalio and James, and the organizers of the book fair. Um, For those of you who came in late, um, my book, uh, Insurgent Supremacists, uh, is available for sale. You can get it over at the other space from the PM Press table. For twenty-five dollars, or if you buy it here, we have a few copies here. You can get it for twenty. So you can talk to me after the after the panel, after the discussion. Um, so I'm going to be sharing some of the ideas that uh, went into the book, uh, "Insurgent premises. I'm not going to try to, you know, give you the whole thing, but uh, some of some uh, sort of the. the broad um, concepts about how I uh, analyze the far-right and and the concept of fascism, and look uh, at some recent uh, developments, specifically looking at the alt-right as kind of an example to make a little more concrete. Um, So the idea of fascism as my uh, co-panelists have presented, is something that has been a very important concept, uh, certainly in combating the right, uh, to a certain extent, in uh, combating state repression, and in in a broader sense, in just leftist organizing in a lot of different contexts. Fascism is a, is a term that gets used in a lot of different ways, and I've been involved in a lot of debates about like how do you define fascism, what does it mean, and you know is this government fascist, is this movement fascist, and so on. And there's some value there, but there's also a way that that can become kind of kind of a dead end, or it it it, it, it can become a distraction. Um, I think it's important for us to remember that fascism is not, unless you're talking specifically about you know a party that has labeled itself fascist, like you know, the Mussolini's party, if you're talking about a broader more generic thing, it's not that fascism is this objective thing out there, and it's a matter of sort of discovering its true features. Fascism as a concept is, it's a tool. It's a tool for us to use to understand our opponents so that we can combat them more effectively and there's different ways of using that tool and the ways that we use that tool may change they may change as our understanding deepens they may change as our opponents rethink and reshape their politics because if you look at far-right or fascist politics today they're quite different than they were say in the 1930s or even in the 1970s. And so let's use the concept of fascism, but let's not get too hung up on it. It's also something that it's helpful to focus on different aspects of it in different situations. If you're in a situation Such as the Black Panther Party was in the late 60s and early 70s, of facing massive state repression, and massive in the sense of systematic campaigns to wipe out your organization by locking up your members or killing them, it makes sense to talk about fascism as a way to describe. Your reality and the overall society that you're living in, you know, and there is great power in drawing the connections between fascism as a concept, you know, kind of embodying repression and the reality of U.S. society to con- combat the mythology that this is a democracy, because. The reality that so many people experience and have experienced since this country was founded has not been democracy. It's been the opposite of democracy. So that's, that's an important piece of it. But I think it's important not to end there. And looking at some of the history that, that Lisa laid out, um, if you look at the, the, the what she was talking about, the Nazification of the Klan and the, the kind of convergence of these uh, white supremacist forces that had been separate and had been at odds with each other, and then in the late 70s and, and then in the, in the 80s really started to come together and, and synthesize their, their, their ideologies and their strategies. Um, one of the things that involved was a real profound shift in how they related to the United States, the the the, the established order in this country. Um, Lisa mentioned the Greensboro massacre in 1979, which was was probably the first moment when there was this active. Um, Convergence of you know Nazis and Klansmen in, in an active way. That operation, that murderous operation in Greensboro, was organized with the participation and active help of a agent of the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms who was working undercover with one of the Nazi groups and a. Um, an informer for the local police who had also been an informer for the FBI. So it was, among other things, a dramatic and horrific example of state government collusion and, and active participation in white supremacist and fascist violence. If you fast forward just a few years to the mid-1980s, you had a very different situation. Because at that point, large sections of the Nazi Klan movement said, we cannot achieve our goals within the United States as it exists, as a political entity. And they started saying, Rather than trying to recapture what we had under Jim Crow and segregationism and and all this stuff, we need a white revolution. And they didn't just talk about it. I mean, they didn't just write about it in books like the Turner Diaries, which was kind of a, a, a blueprint for this. But they took up arms, and they organized underground cells. And they engaged in assassinations. They engaged in bank robberies. They engaged in shootouts with the police. They issued a declaration of war against what they call the Zionist occupation government. So that's not about simply white supremacists being in league with the state. That is a direct conflict there. And that is something that we need to make sense of. If we want to understand what these these folks are about. In some situations, they will work together with the state, and in other situations, they will be at odds. And there's a lot of positions in between. It's not always that clear-cut, you know, but those are kind of the the the, the two poles that they move between. And this is what this is a lot of what my book is about, Insurgent Supremacists. I mean, the, the title is talking about. Um, political forces that have a contradictory relationship with the established order, that in some ways they're about defending and building up and intensifying systems of power and oppression and exploitation in this country. But they are doing it in a way that their vision is such that they believe they have to do it by breaking with the established political system, whether it 's about overthrowing the government or seceding from it, establishing some kind of separate state, something like this um, and um, so there's there's a there's another school of thought in in uh, some branches of the left that says, it's, you know, going back to the idea that fascism is a, is, a, is a tool, the concept of fascism is a tool, that it's most useful to think of fascist forces as those forces that are um, supremacist in the sense of seeking to establish uh, an, an openly supremacist society, uh, but are at odds with the Established order. Um, the book Confronting Fascism, which came out uh, about 15 years ago with essays by Don Hammerquist and Jay Sequai and others, is uh, you know a very uh, pivotal text in, in this regard, something that was very influential in developing my thinking. Uh, and that uh, book was uh, the jumping off point for founding the uh, radical anti-fascist blog Three Way Fight. Uh, the name referring to the idea that it's not just you know the left versus the right or you know the oppressed masses versus the ruling class, but there are content there there's, there are multiple contending forces, and that the fascist right represents a right wing force that is opposed to the left and opposed to global capitalism in some kind of real way. So um, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about that, but um, the way that I define the far right in, 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 in my work generally and in Insurgent Supremacists is sections of the right that, well, it, 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 political forces that believe, on the one hand, that human inequality whether that's based on race or gender or some other criterion, that human inequality is something to celebrate, right? That's one thing. And the other thing is believing that the existing political system in the United States is illegitimate. And this... This is how I'm using the term far right for this particular moment in the United States. This, you know, the last several decades. Um, so it's a term that's it's a concept that's related to fascism, but it, it sort of steps outside of the debates about like, you know, how do we define fascism? You may or may not agree with my take on fascism, but you know, we can talk about far right, and and and, and that concept is is as a as a separate thing. Um, and far right defined in this way includes various different ideological strings It it includes white nationalists certainly who you know the descendants of the Nazi clan forces of the 70s and 80s who talk about you know at this this point the main term they use is a white ethno state you know and they really mean a separate state they they um, that is uh, in my book what sets white nationalism per se apart from other forms of white supremacist ideology that want to make change within the existing framework okay but there are other versions of uh, far-right politics as well that are uh, based in in some cases on religion you know there's a whole section of the Christian right that wants to establish a full-scale theocracy there are uh, sections of the patriot movement that disavow the legitimacy of the U.S. government. And, you know, they um, often put just the the greatest emphasis on individual property rights is sort of that's their be-all and end-all. So there's various different versions that this can take. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Are any of these sectors not white supremacists as well? Um, I would say there are some generally speaking they promote um, white supremacy in the broad sense but they don't necessarily put race at the center they don't necessarily say that race is the core issue for them and there are some forces, far right forces that um, promote um, i would what i would call more sophisticated kinds of racist ideologies such as color blindness where they may say we don't see color you know and you know as in society at large what that generally means is you know we are going to deny the reality of systemic racial oppression and thereby protect it but it also means in practice that they allow, you know, a few people of color to, to be part of their organization as long as they kind of go along with this. So you do see that in section to the far right. Yeah. So um, what I wanted to um, just say a little bit about um, to kind of spell this out a little bit more is. You know, when I th- when I say that the far right is at odds with the establishment, what does that mean? I mean, what what's the conflict there? Is it really? Is it just rhetoric? Is it just sort of a means to kind of exploit people's frustration with the powers that be? Sometimes, I mean, that's part of it. But I do think there's some real conflict there. I mean, if you advocate a white-only society, or if you advocate a theocracy, um. That used to be something that was much more compatible with what global capitalism would be comfortable with. Nowadays, you know, multinational corporations, their vision for how society should be organized, it it's kind of at odds with that. I mean, they they are very much about making use of um, social hierarchies in terms of race and ethnicity and nationality and gender and all different kinds of things. But they don't want to be limited by that. You know, They want the ability to move labor around across international borders. They want the ability to move capital around across international borders. They want the ability to send the US military out to defend their interests in you know, any place in the, in the, the globe that, that uh, it, it is you know, strategically useful to do so. And all of these are things that are at odds with what far-right forces call for. So those are real conflicts. They're not necessarily insurmountable. It doesn't mean that they will necessarily fight to the death, but the, but they're but they're genuine conflicts. It's not just about words. Um, so the last thing I want to do is just talk a little bit about the alt right uh, as a, as a kind of concrete example, um, and it, it's it, the alt right is. I would say the, the newest major branch of the far right to emerge in this country. I mean, it's, it's something that its origins go back to around eight, ten years ago when Richard Spencer started using the term and founded the uh, online journal AlternativeRight.com. And that kind of crystallized a whole um, convergence of various. Um, dissident forces within within the right in this country, most of which initially were outside of the Nazi Klan movement, per se. They were white supremacists, generally speaking. They were authoritarian, certainly. But it was a slightly different version of that. Um, so some of the things that I think are distinctive about the alt-right as it's developed, I mean, certainly, um, the internet focus. I mean, this was the first far-right movement and and one of the first political movements in this country that had, you know, took shape primarily online, not particularly through member organizations or physical um, events, and uh, made very skillful use of um, the internet in terms of clever political memes, and also uh, very coordinated uh, attack campaigns against their opponents. Um, The alt-right is, um, at this point, initially there was some diversity around its ideology, but at this point is pretty solidly white nationalist in the sense that. White, you know, a white ethnostate, or some version of that, is central to what they're about. It's also uh, a movement that has um, placed special emphasis on gender politics and has promoted an especially virulent version of misogyny. I mean, all of these forces, you know, all of these far-right groups are male supremacist in one version or another. But the alt-right, um, you know, if you contrast it with, say, the Christian right, which is very much about the family, right? I mean, they talk about the family all the time. It's the patriarchal family. But it's a family in the sense that women have a, a defined place. And they have put tremendous emphasis on recruiting and organizing and mobilizing women. The alt-right is not like that. There are a few women involved. But they have much more been focused on marginalizing and actively excluding women from politics. So that's, that's, that's an example of a difference. Um, but one of the things that I think is, is, is important about the alt-right is that it illustrates how far-right forces can have an influence beyond their numbers. Um, by interacting with other political forces. You know, you you can call for, you know, a radical break with the U.S. political system, and that may be something that a lot of people aren't going to go along with, and yet they may go along with other portions of your program. So a lot of the things that the alt-right has put forward in terms of... (coughs) in terms of race and gender and other issues have been picked up by other political forces that are, I don't want to say moderate, but that are more limited in their goals, that don't call for uh, abandoning the United States as a political system. And some of those forces have become very important in their own right. I mean, the Proud Boys, is an example of a militant, very violent, street fighting organization that um, does not advocate white nationalism per se, and they will disavow white nationalism. They do not advocate a separate white nation state. They advocate white sho- or, excuse me Western chauvinism. That's their slogan, right? So it is a slightly sanitized version of racism. But in, in, in terms of policy goals, they're trying to work within the existing system. They want to work with the police because they want to build up the, the, the repressive forces that are here, rather than create this other, other system. So that's an example of the kind of interaction that I, I, I'm, I'm talking about. And the Proud Boys and other groups along those same lines have made many efforts to collaborate with and provide cover for white nationalists. So there's a coalition kind of um, possibility there, where white nationalist groups and openly fascist groups will come to Cowboys events and will participate. And Boys came
4: to the Nazi. Rally
5: here a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, they're not as much of a presence in, in Philadelphia where I am, but I, I know that they are much more of a presence up, up, up in the West Coast. Um, and then the one other major example I want to talk about is the alt-right's relationship with Donald Trump, because um, uh, the alt-right in a significant way, helped to put him where he is now by uh, going on the internet and attacking his opponents. I mean, before before the general election, they were instrumental in helping to um, destroy his Republican opponents. One of the things that they loved about him was that he made establishment conservatives look like fools. And they, they've said consistently, Donald Trump is not one of us. He is not a white nationalist. He doesn't share our ultimate goals. But we like a lot of what he stands for. He will help us. He will um, you know, move things part of the way in the direction that we want to go. He will provide uh, space for us to work within to get our message out. And that, you know, that has happened. I mean, their participation in the campaign benefited Trump, but it also gave them much more visibility and, you know, this kind of aura of legitimacy that they would not have had, to, you know, otherwise. Since Trump's election, they've had very mixed feelings about him. They have liked some of what he's done in terms of, um, you know, his efforts at the Muslim ban um, and some of his other measures. They've been uh, unhappy with what they see as... um, his moves that have been too much in line with establishment conservatism. Uh, you know, making a focus on uh, repealing Obamacare. That was not something they supported. Focusing on changing the tax structure to, you know, further intensify the you know, wealth inequality in this country, which is a classic, you know, conservative um, focus. Um, that was not something that they particularly supported. Sending missile strikes against Syria, that was something that was very, very upsetting to many people on the alt-right, because they wanted to uh, you know, have a break with the conventional US policy in the Middle East. So there's some real differences there. Um, but it illustrates the way that you can have um, a complicated but mutually beneficial relationship between far-rightists and um, uh, other branches of the right. In this case, those who are, you know, at the top of power. Um, so, in closing, I just I just want to come back to a, a, a theme that um, I, I keep. Uh, this is the third talk I've given in the last three days. It's kind of the, 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 the touchstone for, for uh, my how I think about strategy. I mean, how do we deal with these people? I think what we need, in very broad terms, is a double-edged approach. It's important for us to see the struggle against the far right and the struggle against institutionalized systems of oppression as related, interconnected, but also as different. They're not, it's not like you can just collapse one into the other. And so that means that it's important for us to, on the one hand, build broad anti-fascist alliances that provide space for people to combat the far-right forces in a variety of ways. It's also important for us to continue to um, promote radical initiatives that challenge institutionalized systems of power that may or may not be uh, in line with what the far right is about. Um, because, you know, whether we're looking at institutionalized white supremacy or the, the economic uh, exploitation of the capitalist system. Or patriarchy as a system, you know, there are a lot of ways that these systems play out and function that are not in line with what the far right advocates. And so, those different elements are are, are all important. Um, I talked longer than I want. I'm going to stop here so that we have time for discussion. Thank you.
0: Welcome back. I don't know why I say welcome back because no one's gone anywhere. However, uh, this is Roman here taking a bit of a break from this panel discussion that we've been playing from this year's Bay Area Anarchist Book Fair. We're going to take a little bit of a music break and then we'll be back with the Q&A segment of the panel discussion. Again, thanks to all the folks on the panel for speaking and sharing all this information. I am always really grateful to learn about history, radical history, things that not only were not taught to us, um, but were hidden and were whitewashed. And there's so much every day, just learning about a lot of the the patterns of things that we see now that have been going on for a really long time and things that were either not talked about in schools, certainly (sighs) twisted in terms of news coverage, oftentimes the opposite. That was one piece in the in one of the books that uh, I'm reading for this course I'm in is just how the media, the news outlets, would pretty much speak the opposite of what was happening and go against the workers and laborers and speak about... They'd publish whatever they wanted to on behalf of big business. So just twisting the facts and, again, getting folks who are not necessarily directly involved with what was happening to, again, take out their frustration on the folks who are suffering, as opposed to the people who are causing the suffering, which is a lot of what we see here. I'm looking out the window in San Francisco, and again, in a lot of places. There's a lot of victim blaming instead of looking at the systemic oppression of what's happening and who's causing that, that those problems to happen and later on in the program towards the end i know we're we'll probably be running a little bit low on time though but wanting to talk about there's of course been thousands of evictions here and another family was evicted yesterday or the police showed up to evict a family before their date in court and again it's really wanting to call into question the folks who have they take issue with they get fr- it's if everyone who is so upset about folks who are unhoused and it's like, where, how come their energy isn't directed towards preventing evictions and preventing folks from being evicted in the first place and the folks who are doing the evictions instead of being the, instead of being taking, you know, their anger out on the folks who have to go through that. It's really, yeah, just, it's a lot of victim blaming and that's a uh, very, common theme through everything it seems and that's another reason I like to do this this, this show is that uh, oftentimes on the show I do a little bit more news different news stories however it's I think it's really crucial to actually talk about what's happening because often in the news we'll we'll hear the opposite of what's happening or we'll hear from the perspective of law enforcement or of corporations or big businesses we'll hear the perspectives of the folks in positions of power who can afford to put their voice out there and so really crucial to continue to share voices of folks who who don't have the power and privilege to own a media outlet and tell whatever story is best suited for them to continue their their power If you appreciate what you're hearing and are able please do consider donating uh, this is mutiny radio it's a somewhat of a it's a more of a, a collective I would say we all volunteer our time here to provide programming, free speech, programming here there's comedy there's news music spoken word all types of shows Uh, labor and love is a great show there's uh, women's magazine which is coming up next there's common thread collective there's so many great programs here on on the on the station if you're interested in supporting the station and or like a program of your own we have open spots available check out mutinyradio.fm also if you'd like to particularly support particularly support (sighs) <sighs> I had extra coffee this morning. Maybe that's it. I'm going to slow down a minute. If you would like to support this program in particular, there's a Patreon account that we have set up. Patreon.com forward slash weekly Big thanks to Nick Nelson for being and Michael Ravinsky for being their two newest donors. Thank you very much. Happy to, I'm happy to volunteer my time to do this and the funds that we get go to renting the space here and anything to compensate for time too. also, one should be compensated for labor, of course. So, if you're able to donate, even a dollar a month would be greatly appreciated. Uh, thank you so much, and thanks to all the listeners. I've been doing the show now for almost five years, and it's changed and it shifted a lot. And I've learned so much. And every every week I come here when I l- read stories, hear. Uh, panel discussions like this when I talk with people there's just so much to learn and I get that it's scary and it's frustrating and it's sad and it's maddening and enraging and I don't even have enough words I'm sure there would be if I was more well well read to describe all the feelings that we have just with what's going on what we witness what we hear people go through and also historically what's been happening and at the same time unless we can acknowledge what's happening then there's no way to really change things. So again, thanks to everyone who's been affiliated with this show, who's contributed in any amount, the folks who listen, and then the so many folks out there working to create the world that we deserve to live in. So thanks everyone for that. <sighs> I just went off there and wasn't quite anticipating it. So here we're going to play a, a song from Victor Hara, who I only heard about very recently within the last few months. <sighs> And after this song, we will get back to the Q&A segment of the panel discussion from this this year's 2018, that's what I'm saying. In case you're listening to this podcast down the road, 2018 Anarchist Book Fear here in the Bay Area. So after this, yeah, you got it. Stay tuned
1: naranjita naranjita porque llora porque tengo que a no se va mi novio no me quizás los pañuelos de mi novio no se sé, da mal conmigo llega a darme agüita de sangre de mi corazón
6: frágil como un volantín En los techos de barrancas Jugaba el niño luchín Con sus manitos moradas Con la pelota de trapo Con el gato y con el perro El caballo lo miraba En el agua de sus ojos se bañaba el verde claro gateaba su cortedad con el potito embarrado con la pelota de trapo con el gato y con el perro el caballo lo miraba. El caballo era otro juego en aquel pequeño espacio, Y al animal parecía le gustaba ese trabajo con la pelota de trapo con el gato y con el perro y con Luchito mojado Si hay niños como Luchín Que comen tierra y gusanos Abramos todas las jaulas Pa' que vuelen como pájaros Con la pelota de trapo Con el gato y con el perro Y también con el caballo
0: welcome back again to the weekly review and now we're going to play the q a segment for the panel discussion of insurgent supremacists
2: so before we get to question and answer and discussion i'll just remind you that uh, books don't sell themselves uh, ser- ser- seriously uh you know, there's a, um, there's a quote, I think it was Kenneth Patchen, or uh, Roth, one of them said, those who profess a love of books but never buy anyone are cheap sons of bitches. Uh, please, um, please buy books so we can have, uh, have, have more titles like this uh, come out in the, in the, in the future. So um, thank you very much to the panelists. Give them a round of applause. also uh, revolutionary love to everybody in the room that has ever uh, lifted a, a, a pen, a fist, a vote, uh, a, a rock, uh, anything. Uh, we make the road by walking together, and uh, let's, uh, so, so let's get uh, get down to it. Who, who, who has a question, please, please direct your questions as much as possible to one of the panelists. I'll uh, go over there, and then you.
4: Easier to hear. Um, I, I swear this is a question, but I do want to push back a little bit that uh, the far right helped propel Trump. It was actually white suburbanites, mostly, who came out for Trump. And so, how do we push back against white nationalism um, or sort of sort of ordinary fascism that's very it's very it's very embedded into the American system? of propelling this kind of naked racism forward. How do we push back on that as sort of anti-racist organizers? Because I think that what's missing from this discussion is that the alt is a very specific thing, but it's a very ordinary racism that we need to be organizing against. And I think that we need to address that uh, as anti-racist activism. So I, I want to hear.
7: Everyone's opinion
2: on that. Um, Who would like to take that?
4: <laughs> well, I think, I think you're right. Um, I don't think it's a contradiction to say that the alt-right helped propel Trump and that regular white people brought him over the finish line. <laughs> uh, both things, it, it, to me, it's not an and or. Yeah. It's a both and. Um, And as a result, his president, I mean, not a day goes by since the day he came down the escalator when racism doesn't spew from his mouth, right? And that has empowered the alt-right and all the white supremacists, those who identify as alt-right and those who don't. I mean, we could have hours of discussion just discussing all those things. but it's also empowered every form of racism and white supremacy and misogyny and gender bias and on and on and on. So I think it, that says to me that we have millions of opportunities to take anti-racist positions. you know. And at one moment, like now, that primarily might reflect itself in fighting what ICE is doing and imprisoning children and the prison industrial complex running its machine with ice prisons, or it might mean fighting the Nazis that showed up in Berkeley a few short weeks ago. Um, And it was great that so many people came out. And it's also, it strikes me as an ongoing problem that now Berkeley has set the model for defending the right of Nazis to speak at great financial um, expense to the city and arresting the anti, the only people that got arrested that day were anti-Nazis. You among them, here, here. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, talk about fascism and the development of issues in terms of the state and military power to defend white supremacy, we're seeing it right now. And we're gonna have to come up with creative ways that I don't think we've yet come up with, and I include myself in that, um, new ways to figure this out. Because it, obviously, us having a protest where all the leadership gets arrested in one part of town and the Nazis having a fully protected demonstration in another part of town is not really a viable scenario. (laughs) We can't just, now that we know that this is what's going to happen, you know, it's not what happened last year, but it is what happened now. Now that we know that this is what's going to happen, we have to come up with some new strategies. I don't have the answer, but I think you're absolutely right to be raising the question. Sure.
2: Cord. I don't think the collection. cords that that. Uh, but but why don't we just turn over the mic to you and we'll project more. Yeah, maybe people could. Laugh. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Or
4: just you. it's not such a big room. Just talk. Yes. Yeah.
8: Okay. Sorry. So. um, My question was a bit of a, it is a little bit of a pushback, but it is still a question, and anyone can feel free. Pushback is okay, too. It's all right. We're fine with (laughs) pushback. Disagreement
4: is okay. So
8: what I was going to say is that in my experience with organizing, because I've largely been in New York City organizing a Maoist collective, is that when it comes down to when it comes down to the condemnation of the left that I hear people and when I say people I mean like everyday people, is that there's been a problem of overemphasis, but then a lack of solidarity and something um, that I felt like you were kind of dancing around, but that I've experienced in my day to day life with this is that the alt-right, or whether it's the militia movement or these far-right movements, not so much the white supremacist, white nationalists, is that they've up, they've taken up an almost kind of radical solidarity when it comes to like the veterans and taking advantage of the fact that there's a lack of veterans' health care, a lack of veterans' ability to re-enter society, and then that these alt-right movements provide them that family and community that they feel like society has shunned them from. and. Like another example of this for the overemphasis is like when I've talked, spoken to African Americans in my community, and they've had a nervousness about doing political action, the number one thing they mention is that even though we had the BPP, after they fell apart, the only thing that remained from them were the Bloods and the Crips, who overemphasized violence and overemphasized this need for money, the problems that you were mentioning with the Lupin proletariat before. So in the face of these issues, I was going to ask, do we take up a new kind of solidarity, or do we continue the same type of solidarity that we've pursued up to this point?
3: Um, I'm not fully sure I understand your question. Are you asking about whether the left should try to actively appeal to uh, basically um, marginalized
8: ex-military? Basically, are like other elements of society which say they're marginalized, and then it's questionable. But the alt right is saying, "Yeah, you are like marginalized, and we're going to take up your issues."
2: If I could talk I mean, you brought up several really good points. You want the mic? Sure. Uh, you brought brought up several several good points, and I'm not going to be able to an- answer them or respond to all of them. But right. the role around veterans historically, if you look going back to the 1930s, after one of the you know the the Bonus March, uh, one of the most uh, significant uh, you know occupations uh, uh, where black and white uh, returning service people from World War One veteran occupied Washington D.C. together to demand the bonus that was. Uh, Uh, Guaranteed to them because it was the middle of the Great Depression. It was, you know, it shows how how the, you know, the terrain of protest around these things can be really contested because in one hand it was one of, it was a breakthrough right it was a very progressive breakthrough of having of having this happen but the right at the time identified the power of veterans as a possibility reached out to smedley butler the uh, the general and asked him to lead a coup against roosevelt right which 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 never happened uh, obviously obviously then we see the same uh, you know in the 60s and 70s with folks coming back from uh, from Vietnam, we see the same contested territory for, um, you know, we have massive amounts of Iraq veterans against the war, the movements uh, in, that we see in the movie Sir No Sir, fantastic uh, documentary, all of the rising up angry out of Chicago, but we also see the right going for, for the exa- exact same base. So this may be simplistic, but from an organizing perspective, if it's organized territory, I mean, if it's territory. Let's let's go have a contest and um, and try try to organize a base out out in front out in front of them. Any other response? No. Is that it better than oh. I could? Okay, thank you. Anybody else want to come up? How
1: about some women? Yeah.
2: Um. Merck. Okay. Alyssa, I'll, I'll to you. Come on, come on up. No, no. You. Yeah, come on up. We'll have a. Yeah, definitely. Genders, balance is very important when building a movement. Yeah. <laughs> and also height equity. It's <laughs> so right. I sympathize.
9: Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that's also been missing in this conversation is that to separate out and say, this is the alt-right, and these are these, and these are the contradictions, misses the normalization of fascism that these groups actually have. And that you can have fascism, and I agree with you completely that to like nitpick what is fascism, you know, and does it have this element and does it have that element is not the point. And I always like to talk about democratic fascism, like we have democratic fascism, which is you have this veneer of democracy, which isn't really true, but people really believe that it's true. They do and yet underneath you have this fascism. And I think the thing about the alt-right and fascists and Nazis and all this stuff is that steadily they have normalized something that would have been anathema 50 years ago. And based on the history of white supremacy and I would say male supremacy in the US. So how do you look at that and how do you look at, like we do have a white supremacist, all white fascist in the White House, backed up by a a lot of people. And how do you look at the impact of the all right and where do you think it's going in terms of that?
5: I partly agree with what you're saying and partly disagree. I mean, I think that um, I don't think we live in a fascist society. I mean, I, I I as I said, I think you can use the term fascism in different ways. To me, it's important to identify the the interconnections and the resonances between our society and fascism, but. If we call this fascism, then the term fascism kind of loses its utility as a tool. Um, I, I, I think of you know, our society and our political system as it's a mix of repression and openness, of authoritarianism and pluralism. And that mix plays itself out in a lot of different ways, depending on where you are. In the society, in terms of you know your position and you know what you know your economic situation and you know what your skin color is and you know just a lot of things that will uh, influence you know the parameters and the forces that are constraining you. Um, it also varies over time. You know, there are times where this country has been much more politically uh, uh, repressive than others. Um, it is not um, moving in a positive direction, certainly, but I don't think that we would be holding this discussion here if we lived under a full scale dictatorship. Right? We would have to take a lot more intensive security measures than have been taken. So let's, let's recognize that. Um, I agree that there are that th- about the normalization. I agree that there are um, all kinds of ways that um, racial oppression and gender oppression and other forms of supremacism play out in daily life and are, are perpetrated and perpetuated by people who don't call themselves alt-right, don't call themselves anything political. And so the kind of change that needs to happen has to go beyond simply targeting the far right of, of whatever form. And this comes back to my closing point, which is that it's not just about going up against the organized far right. It's also about challenging systems of power. And challenging systems of power isn't just like targeting you know, the billionaires or targeting the president. It's about targeting the whole fabric of the institutions that we live in and are part of. So I agree with that part, absolutely.
2: Thank you. Can I ask you? Yeah.
4: Um, I think one of the things that's um, a unique challenge about our society is that more than one thing can be true at a time. So I think, of course, you're right, that um, we couldn't be having this meeting in a full-fledged fascist society. Um, But for black people and immigrants and trans people um, and many people of color, even though the meetings might not be getting broken up right this minute, the reaction to, um, organize, first of all, in day-to-day ways, those people do live in a much more repressive society than, um, than white people. As they said, uh, yeah. Yes. But I think that's part of the situation where more than one thing can be true at a time. And that for white people, part of the experience of white privilege is being able to have a day-to-day life that doesn't feel like you live in a fascist society when in fact you live surrounded by um, fascist elements. And I don't know, when I was a kid, I grew up in New York in a Jewish family. And when I was a kid, it was always a huge question to me, why didn't the Jews of Germany see it coming? Why didn't they leave sooner? It seemed so obvious to me, looking back. Um, and I mean, this. Is the, and now I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, is it happening? Should I be leaving? Um, and feeling much more sympathetic now. To looking at that situation and understanding better how it is that people could be living in it and that it's not like there's going to be one exact second where we say "Right, row, now it's here um, I mean it, the Black Panther Party when they were doing their organizing, the more successful they were, the more repressed they were they were getting murdered in their beds COINTELPRO was invented to destroy them because they were effective and because they were creating uh, an alternative and putting forward an analysis that people could see was both absolutely on the money, and if you read the Panther 10-point program, every single one of the points is still a demand that can and should be and is being raised today. so I feel like for, for those of us who are organizing, especially those of us who are white and anti-racist, we have to be able to hold more than one reality in our analysis at the time. And I think particularly dangerous for us is the issue of nor- normalization because we can feel it happening. I mean, three weeks ago there was a protest in Berkeley uh, there was a Nazi rally at Martin Luther King Park, and most—and it was completely guarded by police. And people will defend their right to have free speech. And now that's the new normal. When did that become okay?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So in our in our last eight minutes, I want to um, want to encourage anybody who has a question just to just to come forward and get in line, but also put a sp- special invitation to women because they have not been exceedingly well represented in the question and answer part. Um, so uh, come on up, and we'll we'll definitely get to you, sir. Ooh,
7: microphone, scary. Uh, so my question is about what you're saying about. Um, Like more sanitized versions of white supremacy, and so ways in which uh, people of color can also uphold alt-right and fascist and white supremacist views. And so, I guess I wanted to just like name a few examples and kind of like see how people like want to reconcile them. So. Um, I was a student at the University of Washington when an East Asian person, an East Asian fascist shot a white passing IWW medic on our Mm. campus. Um, And I think that both the anti-fascist community and the university community didn't know how to reconcile that reality. And then another example also from Seattle is like, um, there was a Proud Boys um, rally against Sharia law and there were all these masked up anti-fascists beating on this um, half-black crowd boy, and then when he went to the media, all he could say, all he would say to them was, do I look like a white supremacist to you? Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's like these moments where there's like extreme cases of violence perpetuated by people of color, and that we, as like a community of anti-fascists, don't know how to deal with those, and thus maybe they go unaddressed. So I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Thank
2: you. Everybody who wants to take that one? Do yeah. Go for
7: that one.
5: Um, I, thank you. That, that was very um, uh, important uh, comment. And um, I think, I I mean, the main thing I want to say is that I think that 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 complexity is something that we need to be aware of and recognize that the, I mean, Far-right politics and white supremacist politics take different forms, and they they can take forms that are um, that don't fit preconceptions. And there are it, it, there are some groups, and, and the Proud Boys is, is a major example, which have um, recruited a small number of people of color and put them in in prominent positions. Um, in large part in order to kind of deflect charges of, of racism. And so it's important for us to look beyond just the sort of standard notions about what white supremacy looks like. And 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 also just recognize that, that there are differences there. That it's that that um, there are you know that people of color who are recruited into those organizations you know they're they're choosing to play that role um, and it's something that just calls on us to um, look beyond just the the standard old notions about, How racial politics works. I just, I just think that there are ways that white supremacy can can function. It it can 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 develop in more sophisticated forms. That um, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but but um, I just think that's that's important. I don't know if anybody has. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So thanks again for uh, these tough questions. Um, I have kind of two ways to think about it, I'm thinking through right now. One, the, the Panthers encountered this kind of thing. They, um, well, on the East Coast, those Panthers that engaged in, in guerrilla activities and uh, particularly engaged in, uh, in combat with police, uh, some of whom were black, um, then found themselves accused by the, in the media, so the Panthers were accused of being racist, because they want to team go after black police officers, right? Um, so I imagine that this is totally not new, or not any newer than uh, to- racial tokenization, right? Um, for me, when you get to these kind of blurry contexts, I try to just think in terms of right, rather than thinking that a person's politics is what they think or say, their views, their ideas. I think a person's politics are their actions. So. Um, uh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, so uh, it's easy to get caught up in the symbols, representation, what someone seems to be based on what they look like, what they say, as opposed to looking at what is, what is this person actually doing? What is this group doing? Uh, how are they acquiring power for themselves or taking, away, taking it away from others? And I think from there we can try to maybe assess uh, what side they're on.
4: Thank you for being
5: so patient. Thank you guys for coming today.
0: Um, All right. So... Uh, that was Insurgents Premises, the U.S. Far Rights Challenge to State and Empire. It was a panel discussion from this year's Bay Area Anarchist Book Fair. Unfortunately, we have to cut it a bit short as we are wrapping up the program. And coming up next at 2 p.m. will be Women's Magazine with Global Val. I did want to get to a few news stories. I would, I'd rather not because the news is depressing. However, i uh, got to talk about things that are happening. So I'll do a very brief rundown. And again, I want to encourage folks to research this for yourselves. Talk to folks about it. Um, there's definitely different news organizations that have more independent news coverage. So please do check those those out. The, the Intercept is one, Democracy Now! Uh, it's going down. There's a few different organizations out there that do provide independent journalism. So I want to encourage folks to take a look at these. Uh, so from the San Francisco Examiner, uh, this happened just Wednesday of this week, uh, Equipto, who's a rapper and an activist, was arrested by the police after he was filming them. A young uh, black youth was um, being beaten by police officers, and Equipto began to record them, and then the police arrested him. He has since been released, and there is a big protest outside the Mission police station. And for more information on that, if you go to the SF Examiner, they have an article that came out um, in the last couple days that has much more information about that, and that was published by Laura Waxman, and it came out two days ago with more information about that. Also, it's been about a year since the since Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, and the, the death count is 2,975 people, and the president is denying that that happened, so there's that. Uh, Democracy Now! also has some more information on that. Uh, for folks who are following the prison strike, and if you're not following it, follow it. It started on August 21st, and was supposed to go till September 9th. However, there's still folks taking action. And if you'd like to hear more information about that and or ways that you can be effective, there's also like phone zaps that are happening. There are letter writing campaigns. There's a lot that you can do. Uh, please do check out incarceratedworkers.org for updates and as well as different ways to do outreach for folks. There's also blackandpink.org is a organization that helps connect folks with LGBTQ folks who are incarcerated. Um, In Ireland, don't talk about Ireland too much on this program. However, earlier this year, they decided to finally make abortion legal. And also, recently, they are going to make it free. They're going to have free abortion. So that should happen everywhere, obviously, and free birth control and sex education. That's a no-brainer. However, speaking it aloud, planting some seeds. (sighs) Uh, So ICE are still kidnapping children, and one of the government officials said that they have a, a number count, which is 1488, which is apparently a white nationalist number, and many folks are calling attention to this, saying that they are doing the dog whistling, they're doing the signaling of their white nationalist agenda, so that's something to look out for, as if we didn't already know that folks who are fucking kidnapping children are evil. There's that as well. Uh, McDonald's employees are protesting sexual harassment. There's a lot of stories about that if you want to look for that online, find more information about that as well. Democrats, some of my least favorite, I, I mean, I dislike most political parties. Democrats have unanimously approved a military budget increase. All of them. And folks have been protesting, Code Pink, as well as many other activists have been protesting. Uh, if you want to, if you go Code Pink, you could type in that information. They've been protesting, and I'm gonna. That's when I lose it. I fucking lose it. There's money for war, but not for healthcare or housing or food or education or things that people actually need funding for. That's frustrating. How do we reverse it? Thank you to all the folks out there who are protesting. Uh, John Burge is a guy I never had heard of and he was a police commander in Chicago who was accused of torturing people for decades he died at 70 so bye <sighs> Kavanaugh this fucker who's gonna try to get on the Supreme Court <laughs> has been accused of rape and many people are trying to get him many more people of course are trying to get him out <sighs> and some folks are trying to get him on the Supreme Court Sending lots of love and solidarity to the folks trying to, not even trying, trying to get that word, I'm looking to get that word out of my vocabulary, pushing Kavanaugh out. Uh, Anarchists are sending goods to victims of the hurricane on the East Coast. Anarchists and a lot of mutual aid folks are the ones who tend to kind of get things done easier than bureaucratic, other bureaucratic agencies. Uh, There are folks who are protesting the the death of Botham Jean in, in Dallas. Folks blocked a freeway. Folks went to the Dallas Cowboys football game and, and they had caskets. So Again, another person, innocent person, killed by the police. That happened in Dallas. And finally, I'm not finally because there's, I'm sure, plenty of things I'm not getting to. However, for time's sake, I'll end on something more positive. Uh, the very first birth certificate for someone who was born intersex Uh, has been created in in Colorado. So uh, sending lots of love and solidarity to the folks in the intersex community and being recognized and validated. So here's some more of that. Okay, on that note, thanks again so much for listening. This has been the Weekly Review. We'll be back next week. Coming up next is Women's Magazine with Global Val. And uh, also, just going over the songs we heard. First up, open up the show with charles bradley's version of heart of gold heard the afghan wigs with honky's ladder uh victor hara with luchin and uh whoo talking really fast how about some bread and roses by joan baez i think that's a good thing to end on so have a great week everyone
5: and Roses" with
0: me. we'll be back next week
10: As we go marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill of gray, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses, for the people hear us singing, bread and roses, bread and roses. As we go marching, marching, we bask us bread but give us roses as we go marching marching unnumbered women dead go crying through our singing their ancient call for bread small art and love and beauty their drudging spirits new yes Marching, marching, we bring the greater days The rising of the women means the rising of the race No more the drudge and idler, tend that toil where one reposes But a sharing of life's glories, bread and roses